So welcome to our second part of the teaching under the kingdom of God. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you're not a Christian that is watching this, I bet that one of the reasons why you're not a Christian is because for you, the kind of Christianity that you've encountered, you feel doesn't really deal with the real stuff of life. Whereas some of us who are Christians, and maybe you don't like going to church, you found Christianity or the kind of Christianity that you um, encountered, you found it very frustrating because you feel like the Christian gospel, let's call it the gospel of grace, it seems to be so fixated on making heaven. Whereas, we have a lot of life to live on the earth before we make heaven. That's your encounter. Because you wish that the gospel of grace was able to help speak into issues, the issues of families, the issue of education, of the economy, of government, of art and, uh, art and entertainment, of media, of social media. It just doesn't seem equipped enough to be able to handle that. Now, some of us are saying, ah, <laughs> that's how I felt with my Christianity at one point. But you see, the problem was with the message. Because, you see, I encountered another message. You see, the gospel of grace is fine, but the gospel of grace helps you to make heaven. I encountered another message from the Bible that, encounter, that engages with all of those things. You know what it's called? It's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's somewhat related to the gospel of grace because both of them have gospel, but it is a different message entirely. I know that was making the rounds. It's made rounds at different points in human history and the church's history in different parts of the world. But in particular, I remember in Lagos in the 90s, um, there were people that were really talking about that. And um, I remember a very popular preacher, not Nigerian, but used to come to Nigeria all the time, said, he went as far as saying, Paul preached the gospel of grace. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Is this true? Now, I do want to say that while there are things uh, to agree with, you know, for, at least from the motivation of the people that are saying this thing, the truth is that the gospel of grace, that way you want to call it, and the gospel of the kingdom, they are not different in substance. They're different in emphasis, but not in substance. What I mean different emphasis is one focuses on the nature of God's activities. And the other one focuses on the result of God's activities. One focuses on the nature of God's activities, the other one focuses on the result, but, at the same, but they are the same or uh, of the same substance. Now, so one of the things I want to do with this teaching is to show you how the theme of the kingdom of God develops in the New Testament, and you'll see how the gospel of grace, so-called, and the gospel of the kingdom actually do unite. So we're going to set the foundation of how the kingdom of God eventually is established. And then you see how it then starts to affect all the other aspects of our lives in the next couple of teachings. Are we ready? Okay. Now, at the outset of his ministry, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, what he meant and what the people around him heard are two different things. You see, if you are in Nigeria in the late 50s, 1959, and you heard something like this, this was the good news, the British colonialists were leaving. You know what that meant? It meant the end of an empire's rule 
and the rise of self-rule. This is what the Jews heard when Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom is at hand. You see, they were under the occupation of the Roman Empire. But before that, they had been under the occupation of the Greek Empire. Before that, they were under the occupation of the, um, uh, uh, the Persian Empire. And before that, they were under the uh, control of the Babylonian Empire. They had not had their own rule for hundreds of years. 700 plus years. Uh, sorry, 600 plus years. And so when they heard that, you know what they heard? That the kingdom of God is coming. They basically heard that the overthrow of the Romans was, bringing, was, uh, was imminent. That God was going to sack them and then the rule of the Davidic Messiah was now going to begin. Israel will now be ruled by that Messiah. They will now become the light to the world. That's exactly what they heard. It's why in Luke chapter 2, we meet two old people, one a man and one a woman, Simeon. It says Simeon in verse 25 had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, in verse 38, was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. They were thinking about the consolation and redemption in nationalistic terms. Even Jesus' disciples, after he had risen from the dead, they asked him in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? You see, what they were hearing was the overthrow and salvation in nationalistic terms. The same way many of us, when we're asking God to intervene into the life of our nation, we're looking at it through socioeconomic terms. It's just that with these guys, it was going to have socioeconomic, um, uh, socioeconomic impact, but they were looking at it from their savior, the Messiah, coming to overthrow them in, in militaristic ways. Jesus had a problem with his family, just like many of us do, with one of his cousins, actually, who was doubting Jesus' messiahship. His name was John the Baptist. He had a flourishing ministry before Jesus Christ came. He was the one that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. But he started having doubts. Why? Because he was in prison. And he too was expecting like, hey, hey guy now, <laughs> if, if I pointed to you, you are the Messiah, why am I in prison? And so he sent some of his disciples to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. It says that when John was, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent the disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, Jesus then replied curiously in verses 4 to 5. He says, go back and report to John what you see and hear, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That was a curious answer. Why did he give that peculiar answer? I'll tell you why. He gave him an opportunity for them to, to, to he did a Bible study essentially with the people around. And was, but he knew John would understand it, but he explained. You see, in Isaiah 35, verse 5 to 6, and Isaiah 61, verse 1, this is what Jesus was saying. He wanted them to reorient their understanding of how, of who, what the Messiah, who the Messiah is and what he would do when he comes. And also, really, reorient their understanding of the kingdom of God. Because in the Isaiah 35, verse 5, 6, and 61, verse 1, it says, In the time of the Messiah, in the Messianic age, the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. It's like, can you see? That's what I'm doing. I am truly the Messiah. Don't judge 
the coming of the kingdom simply because you are in prison. Don't judge the coming of the kingdom simply because Israel is still under the occupation of the Romans. He said, the spirit of sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I am doing all this healing and also the poor are hearing the good news. So you see, those Isaiah passages were prophesied within the context of the kingdom breaking forth, coming in. Now, John the Baptist, who would have understood those scriptures, remember how Isaiah 61 starts? He says, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. The way John eventually knew Jesus was the Messiah in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 to 17 was, the spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove. In John chapter 3, verse 34, he says, Jesus is the one, uh, the Messiah is, um, Jesus, the Messiah had the spirit of God upon him without any limit. Jesus performed his ministry by having the Spirit of the Lord descend upon him. He was performing his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he ties that to the kingdom of God, not political elections or political overthrow. In fact, when Jesus was exorcising a demon, he was accused in Matthew chapter 12 of doing that by the power of Beelzebub, by dark powers, through the power of the devil. And then Jesus says something. In verse 28, he says, if, this, if, it is the, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, if it is by the Spirit of God that I do that, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he was saying, rethink how you think about this kingdom. Here's another thing I want you to think about. He was trying to reorient them. It was about the temple. You see, in Zechariah 6 verse 12, when we were thinking about the Messiah, we are told that the Messiah is going to be a temple builder. Zechariah 6 verse 12 says, Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out, branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. So they expected that the Messiah would be a temple builder. In fact, they expected that the Messiah would build a final temple as prophesied in Ezekiel. So overthrow their oppressors, set up God's king, um, uh, temple, build the final temple, and then all the nations of the world will come to Israel. Was just incomplete. So it's true that the Messiah was going to be a temple builder. It's true that that temple was going to be uh, as seen in the book of Ezekiel, but they were missing certain aspects of what Ezekiel said. You see, in Ezekiel 47, describing this temple, in verses 1 and 12, this is what he says. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, verse 12. That water then went out from the temple. And you know what it was doing? It says, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. In other words, the water brings life. And then it then says, their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. There's a water that will come from the temple that will bring about healing. Don't forget the temple is central to the kingdom. And what he's saying is that healing and restoration will flow from the kingdom of God and the Messiah will be the builder of this temple. I hope we're getting it. Temple builder, bringing forth healing. Now that's why in John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus says this to the people around him. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. He didn't fully understand what he was saying, but he was saying this, I'm a temple builder. Now take the claim that I'm a temple builder and tie it to my ministry whereby I am bringing healing. 
And then you say, oh, what about the water imagery? Well, Jesus in John chapter 7, verse, verse 37 to 39 says this, let the, and let anyone drink who believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of him will flow rivers of living water. What were these living waters? By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Are you getting it? Temple, rivers, living waters that bring healing, Holy Spirit, Jesus cast out devils by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is healing by the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is upon him. You see, his ministry was essentially about demonstrating, proclaiming, and teaching about the kingdom. You see, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus went around doing all of these things. He says, in verse 23, he said, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, proclaiming it, and healing every disease and sickness among the people, demonstrating the power of the kingdom, proclaiming it, demonstrating about it, and then by the time there was confusion and there were crowds around him, you know what he decided to do? In what we now call the famous Sermon on the Mount, in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, that promised Messiah that they were looking for, even though their understanding of what he was going to do was what, Jesus was saying, according to the scriptures, I am that person. Which is why when the angel visited Jesus' mother, Mary, he says this before Jesus was born, in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33, you will conceive. And give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Remember what God told David about Solomon? The king will be his what? Son. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He's in that lineage, the Davidic king, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. In other words, the kingdom of God is now going to be the kingdom of his Messiah. Jesus is saying he's that promised Messiah. So how is this kingdom then established? Though? Because he's saying it is at hand and he's demonstrating the power of that kingdom. He's teaching about it, but how was he established? I don't know if you've ever been at a class where you didn't fully understand what was going on. You know, I experienced this in my first couple of classes during my master's uh, degree when I traveled abroad, you know. <laughs> I did my first degree in Niger. By the time I went abroad, you know, I remember the first couple of classes are like, what is, what, are they speaking English? And I thought, my God, <laughs> my parents had earned money. <laughs> I, I went back, I started reading, I didn't understand what I was saying. Jesus' disciples were in a class with him too where they didn't really understand what he was saying. It was deep, but actually, I think it was most likely because they didn't like what he was saying. You see, three different times, and this was the second, three different times, Jesus told them something they did not like. And during the second one, it was clear they didn't understand. In Mark chapter 9, verse 31 to 32, he spoke a little bit about how this kingdom will be established. They could not understand. They did not anticipate that this was what was going to happen. This is what he said. He said to them, Mark 9, 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. Kill what? And after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They're like, no. We left everything we had to follow you. Killing you. What's going to happen to us? In fact, later, 
he shows them <laughs> that he's going to die on a cross like a criminal. What does this have to do with the kingdom? What does this have to do with the king that is meant to overthrow the enemies of God? But you see, you now start to understand. They didn't understand at the time. But if we go back to that John chapter 2 where Jesus says, I will rebuild this temple. They now started to understand later. You see, in John chapter 2, he said, Jesus answered in verse 19, destroy this temple, I'll, write, I'll raise it in, again in three days. One verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. His body was going to be destroyed. That is, he was going to be killed, but he was not going to remain dead. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Now they understood. In other words, it was part of the plan. Part of the plan for the Messiah to die, which is why the governor, the governor of the province where the Jews were called Pilate, when Jesus was crucified like a criminal, he put a sign, even though the people did not want him to put that sign. He said, what I have put, I have put. They crucified him, John 19 verse 18, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The cross was Jesus' first throne. And I really want us to stop and think, and many times when we think about power, when we think about kingdom, when we think about God coming to deal with our enemies, why do we always think about it in the way the world thinks about it? Jesus is saying, think about it again. Just as he said that to his people then, he's saying that to you now. It is an upside-down kingdom. It's an inside-out kingdom. It's a countercultural kingdom. It comes and is established by one giving his life for the others. He died. Jesus came. He's the son of God. He was God that became a human being. But second, he now died. And when in his death, he was high and lifted up. On the throne of the cross but then after that he says he did not remain dead he was buried but after three days he came back from the dead he appeared to his disciples and something absolutely stunning was said when he met his disciples at the end of the book of matthew chapter 28 verse 17 to 20 when they saw him they worshiped him because he's god even though he's a human being uh, but some doubted then jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not all authority in Judah. Not all authority in Israel. Not all authority in America. Not all authority in Australia. Not all authority in Canada. Not in Nigeria. Not in South Africa. But all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he's the Messiah. He's David, the Davidic king. That ties him to David. At the book of Matthew, in the beginning of uh, the book of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus is traced to David. But he says something else because it's also traced to somebody else. Abraham, in verse 19, says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Remember? Abraham, I will bless you. A nation will come out of you. And through you, I will bless all nations. Jesus was a Jew that came out of that nation. And God was now telling, uh, Jesus was telling his disciples who had, who had seen his death and resurrection, go and bless all nations. Go and fulfill God's promise through Abraham. Why? Because all authority has been given to me. So all of a sudden now we have God's king. And now he's telling his disciples, his people, to go and make more of God's people. But notice what he says after then. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them 
to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus is God giving his law. God's law. And then finally he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you. God's presence. But if he is with you, he says I'm with you, eventually, you know what happened? Jesus ascended to heaven. So where is God's presence? Well, that's why when Peter is explaining what happened with Jesus, right, after he's ascended, because in his, his first, he first came, God became a human being. Second, he died. Third, he rose from the dead. Now he's ascended. Why is he ascending? He's ascending to the throne in heaven. That's where his throne really was. But what's the proof on earth that Jesus was now coronated in heaven? Acts chapter 2 verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 32 says, God has raised Jesus to life and we are witnesses of this. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. What he's saying is this, the proof that Jesus has been enthroned in heaven is that he poured his spirit out on earth. The same Holy Spirit that was poured out on Jesus, he now pours out on the people that he has told to go and make disciples of all nations. And through that Holy Spirit, that his people experience his presence. So we have God's king, we have God's people, we have God's law, and now we have God's presence. But I don't want you to mistake and understand, misunderstand this. The kingdom of God has started. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus has died and he's now on the throne. It's not just, it's not that we are waiting for the kingdom. Oh, the kingdom has come. No, the kingdom has already started. It started 2,000 years ago. It is here. It's not that we are trying to establish the kingdom of God. You don't establish the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is established through God. And he has already established it. The kingdom has been inaugurated. And if it is here, if it is here, then that means Satan is in trouble. The way it was established was through the cross and the resurrection and his coronation. And that meant that Satan's kingdom was in trouble. That's why in Colossians 2 verse 15, he says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Listen, Christian, if you think the Satan and the devil is opposing you, if you think demons are opposing you, if you think you have enemies that are opposing you, as long as you are in the kingdom of God, you are dealing with defeated foes. Because the kingdom has started. But there's one more thing. If we have the king, we have the presence, we have the law, we have the people, what about the place? Is it a geographical area? Because it can't be, because if we're discipling all nations, then people in different places are part of the kingdom. And this way you must see that even though the kingdom has started, the kingdom has not been fully established. It is begun, but it still has a future aspect to it. There is still something to inherit. You see, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, when he's giving Timothy a charge. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge. He came as a human being. He died. He rose again. He's now ascended and coronated as Lord, but he's still going to be judged. He will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, he's still going to appear to establish his kingdom. He descended to establish the kingdom. He is going to appear 
to fully, fully consummate the kingdom. And so what does that mean? And I want to take you to a passage in Revelation 21, verse 1 to 3, and 22, 1 to 3 as well. And we'll see what this thing looks like in the future, and eventually we'll define what the gospel is. And so he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first... Sorry, I should say this. Part of one of the things that happens to the people of God, we see in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, the kingdom, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says the end, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign, he's reigning, but he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when the kingdom fully comes, when it comes to judge the living and dead, even death itself will be taken away. The people of God will never die again. They will be given new bodies where they will never die again. So those people now, where are they going to live? Where is the place? And so we go back to that Revelation 21, verse 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Remember with Adam and Eve, the garden was in the earth, in the old heaven and the earth. It was not yet spread. Now it says, everything is now spread. The knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It is the entire earth that is the kingdom of God. But he now talks about it from a city. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, he said, God has made them a city, even though it's a country and it's a kingdom. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. She was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. But God was saying it's a new Jerusalem that was coming, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them, God's place. God's place and God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, we're not looking for a new Nigeria, a new America, a new Zimbabwe. What we're looking for is a new heavens and a new earth. We're not looking forward to a new Lagos. We're not looking forward to a new Medugri. We're not looking forward to a new New York, a new, uh, new New York, <laughs> a new uh, 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 London. We're looking forward to a new Jerusalem. But it's also like a garden. If it's a city, it's also like a garden. There it says this in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life. Remember that? Just like Ezekiel's temple. Actually also in the garden of Eden, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, as we saw, but no longer the tree of good and evil there a tree of knowledge of good and evil, bearing 12 crops of fruit, again, just like we saw in Ezekiel, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for what? The healing of the nations. The nations are no longer cursed. Verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in that city. You say, where is the throne? The throne of the God and the Lamb. And so now we have God's place. We have God's people. We have God's king. We have God's law. And we have God's, um, uh, God's presence fully established in the kingdom of God. There is the future, but there is the present aspect. So when we think about the gospel of God's grace, the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it is tied to the kingdom. What is that gospel? The gospel is the good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, is the resurrected Lord and the impending judge of the world. And this is a message of grace. That's why it's the gospel of God's grace. 
but it's also a message when believed and fully, when the results of this message are fully established, when Jesus does all that Jesus is meant to do, is the kingdom of God that will be fully established on the earth. Now, I know I said that that kingdom is future in terms of the consummation, but the people of this kingdom, because the kingdom has started now, can have effects in their world. It can have effects in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in all the things that we do. But for us to know and understand that we have to see how this kingdom, which is here but has not been fully consummated, how does this kingdom advance? And that's what we're going to look at in the next, next video. See you then.